0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Early Modern History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Yana Byers, your host, and I'm here today with Sarah Beam, professor of history at the University of Victoria in beautiful British Columbia, Canada, to talk about her recent book, The Trial of Jean-Catherine, Jean-Catherine, I don't know how that, okay, Infanticide in Early Modern Geneva, out 2021 with the University of Toronto Press. I did not expect to stumble over the pronunciation of Catherine. I don't know what that was, sorry. Hello, Sarah, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here. I am delighted, I'm really excited. I'm looking forward to talking to you about the book. Um, How are you today? I am well. As you uh, noted, I am in sunny, beautiful British Columbia and it's the summer and uh, yeah, it's a lovely day. I'm happy to be here. Wonderful. yeah, where I'm in Amsterdam and it's raining, which I think I say about 95% of the time when I do. I knew what I was getting myself in for, but sunny is fun. That's fun. I remember sun vaguely. <laughs> <laughs> well, if, you, if you'd if you called me in November, I would have been exactly the same boat. Right <laughs> um, all right. Uh, so, like I said, I'm really looking forward to talking about this book. It's so cool. Um. And it's the kind of, I mean, for classroom use, certainly um I, but it, it's such a it's such an integral part of what it means to be an historian right is to go find something like this and make sense of it that i think it would be a very cool a really good book um and fun for people who are just interested in maybe a little bit about what we do um and it's 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 astounding in its complexity and its completion and it, you know it just just tells this really round well-rounded story um how did you find this guy yeah, it was really an accident in the archives, When, which is what often happens. You go in looking for something and then you find something completely different and you just have to keep your antenna sort of very sensitive to the treasure troves that you can accidentally come across. So I'm in the middle of writing a, a book on the history of torture uh, in the early modern period, and I'm focusing as a case study on Geneva, the city of Geneva, which was an independent republic at the time. And I'm I'm focusing on Geneva mostly because they have amazing records. So they just have more records about how torture was practiced, why it was practiced, um, than most other communities. Um, We know that torture was legal across Europe at this time. So in looking at Geneva, I'm also trying to tell a bigger story. Uh, But uh, but I've really gotten granular. I've really gotten into those archives because they are so exciting. And so I came across Jean-Catherine because I was looking for cases, trials in which torture was used. And where I could sort of try and understand why it was being used, because that's one of the questions that I'm that I'm trying to answer with my book. So I came across her and I thought, oh, wow, exciting. And I did what historians do these days. If their archives allow them, I did took digital photographs of the entire trial, which is quite a long trial, many, many folios. And often I have to be quite efficient. I live in British Columbia. When I go to Europe, it might be for a few weeks. So I, I took these photographs and then I didn't do very much with them for a few years um, because the torture project went in a different direction. Um, and then I realized that I she kept niggling at me, that the trial kept coming to mind. Uh, I wanted to know more about jean Clean, And then I realized that the story, it had a story to tell about torture, absolutely, because torture does play a role in the trial, but that it was really a story about women. Um, and it was about... Um, Different women of different status, so uh, noble women, but also peasant women. It gave a lot of um, opportunity for peasant women to to voice their perspective, uh, which is very unusual. Um, And it was also about a network of women helping each other and then stopping helping each other, but women interacting um, socially, but also economically. So it revealed a whole network of rural women who were supporting women from the city of Geneva who are having illegitimate children uh, and had to leave the city because it was, it was illegal and they were likely to get banished anyway if they were found to be pregnant when they weren't married. So they would voluntarily leave the city and go to one of the villages around and they would hire people to help them, a midwife, somewhere they could stay, uh, and to really expose this economic network, which is very difficult to access. Uh, we sort of in principle known that this exists. We knew women left cities and would sometimes give birth in the countryside. But it allowed me to talk about this in a really um, tangible and detailed way. Mm, I see how this kind of I see the cycle here, too. Um, and then um, so when he found this case and it's huge, that, that murder, I can see why then you weren't like, well, I'm going to read all of this. Um, and then what made you decide that this was, we were going to use this for a complete translation and try to make this kind of book out of it? Yeah. So I uh, had the, for, I was very fortunate in that I was, had been teaching a class uh, on criminal justice in early modern Europe here at the University of Victoria, where I work. And I had been using another trial called the trial of Temple Annika, also published by the University of Toronto Press, which is a, um, a complete 17th century witch trial. Uh, and uh, it worked really well with the students. The students really responded uh, with passion and interest and intrigue to this trial. And uh, I suddenly thought maybe this could work in the same way, that it could be a uh, book that would introduce students to the way that historians work, uh, how we think, how we construct arguments through this really compelling story. Um, and so I approached the University of Toronto Press and they were very, very excited and um, were happy to move forward with it. And that, so that's really what uh, I think if it hadn't been uh, Natalie Fingerhut of uh, the University of Toronto Press being so enthusiastic about the project. I, I don't know if I would have gone through with it because in some ways it was a distraction from my uh, some other research projects. Um, I was also very fortunate to have a graduate student who helped me with um, some of the translation, Justine C. Simmons. semmons And she uh, was also just such a fan of the project. She said, "There's going to be a movie." (laughs) So, uh, so uh, that also really sustained me through the much more laborious process of translating the entire trial than I had anticipated. It's the first time I'd taken on a major, major translation project. i would translated articles, things like that, but this was um, on a a much larger scale. Uh, And uh, so it was nice to have their enthusiasm and their support throughout the. Throughout the time I was working on it, there are a couple things I really want to flag for our audience that that probably are just not intuitive. And the first is that I think, you know, especially if you like watch, um, you know, uh, like scholars on television or in movies translating, they just like read out these perfect paragraphs, which is laughably wrong. (laughs) But translation is so much harder, yeah. Definitely, definitely. And yeah, it's the same thing. You say the same thing about scientific research. Like they, they work for two months and then they find the, you know, they discover the solution to the disease that people were working on. Yeah. So it it was, it was, um, yeah, more work than I anticipated. It's not intrinsically a really difficult trial to translate, but I wanted to get the tone right. I wanted to make it accessible to a broader audience. So to people who are non-specialists, um, you know, specifically students. So also a younger crowd who um, who are used to maybe reading more online than they are in a book form, and um, and yet also to remain true to the language in the trial. So I really worked hard to sort of distinguish different voices. So the the style in different sections of the trial are, is is quite um, is distinct, yeah. And so that, but it was it was satisfying work as well for sure because I did feel like I brought the story of Jean Catherine. Um, to light for, for a wider audience. And, and she's someone who is really erased from the historical record. Um, someone wrote a... Jeanne catherine is from a, a, a lower noble family in Switzerland. And someone wrote a biography of the family recently. So it was published in the early 2000s, a, a Swiss historian. So looked at the history of her family, the Thomasette family from about 1300 to about 1800. And so it was a volume taking all of the notarial records, all the documentation this person could find. And this uh, individual um, did find Jeanne-Catherine in the records. They have her baptismal record. So we know when she was born, but there was no record of what happened to her in her life. She was erased from the family history. Wow. Because she had sex out of marriage, she had an illegitimate child, and there was this criminal trial in which she was accused of poisoning two children. And so probably the historian who wrote the biography of the family had no idea what happened to her, because the family assiduously kept no records. (laughs) So (laughs) She she was uh, erased in the sense that, you know, most women's voices are erased in history. It's just because so few of them were writing and speaking in ways that were recorded but she was deliberately erased by her family. So it just felt even more poignant to bring her story to light. Mm-hmm. So let's talk as well. The second thing I want to make sure everybody gets their hand, gets the, kind of the wraps their brain around is what this looks like. So what have you got? You open up a wait, oh, That's an Italian. You open up your file. What have you got? Uh, so manuscript handwriting, um, a folder that has been organized by an archivist. Um, so ARCA sort of amassed a certain amount of documentation, put them in a nice 19th century folder and very nice 19th century handwriting, wrote a summary of what was in the trial. And then you open the folder and, uh, you get a mess of different handwritings, different kinds of space, sizes of paper, different, very different scripts, very different styles of writing. Uh, and it just goes on for folio and folio and folio, uh, there are people who are writing reports. There were surgeons that were called in and um, physicians, university trained doctors who were called in, and they were writing reports about the corpses of the two children. Um, And so you've got all these different handwritings and it's kind of a mishmash and a mess and you try and make sense of it. So my choice was to try to give the reader the documents in the order that as far as I could see the, um, the court, the judges saw the material. So I tried to put it in a kind of a chronological order that, that would have been perhaps the way it unfolded for them. Of course, I never know exactly how it unfolded for them because there are going to be documents that weren't included. And I I highlight that in the intro- introduction that there are some documents that we know existed that didn't end up in the folder. And I dug around and I tried to find some of those and I did include some of them that I was able to locate. Um, but uh, but we all we know that it's an incomplete record. I mean, it's a rich record. There's lots there to think about. Um, But it will always be incomplete, which is always the case with history. You always get a partial story. It's the things that people happen to write down uh, that happen to survive that uh, that you have to work with. That happen to write down, that happen to survive, that happen to make it through the that 19th century archivist's gaze, which is that's a story for a different podcast. Um, But then, by definition, we're talking about what's written. There's all these other things you're missing, right? We how are they dressed? What do they look like? Absolutely. Absolutely. And and one of the things that I found very challenging, um, but tantalizing in the records and the things that weren't in the records was body language. Uh, so it's just, you have to really, you do need to use your imagination a little bit. And if, if there are any hints in the records of, about body language, you obviously zero in on those and, and really focus on them. But um, but often you don't get those hints, and so it, it matters so much. So when jeanne Catherine was first brought before an investigating officer, um, what did what did she look like? Did she look did she look penitent? Did she look scared? What you know what what was the body language that she was emitting? And we know that um, judges in that period were very sensitive to that. They um, uh, not so much in this trial, but in other trials that I've read. You'll see occasional uh, references to, well, she was very pale and seemed very penitent. And so they might give a a lesser punishment, for example. Um, So people were definitely looking for those kinds of cues. uh, And they're sometimes given to us in the records, but so often, uh, often not. So in this trial, there are definitely some, but um, not as many as I would have liked, for sure. So we are relying on what people are saying and not necessarily how they're saying it. So uh, it's, it's very, it's, it's always an interpretive act when you read these words. Um, You're, you're probably bringing your own assumptions, your own worldview to, to how you would read them out loud, for example. Um, But we will never know exactly how they were spoken. Yeah, things that I think I would be very scared to say out loud. I don't know if that's the case, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not in the same position where simply by having had sex outside of marriage once I've maybe put in jail, right? we just in these very different places. It's a very different world, right? And, um, and to think that these people were also embedded in a Christian culture in which, in, you know, extramarital sex definitely happened, but it was frowned upon by the church. And it's clear that Jeanne-Catherine came from a fairly pious family, so pious uh, Protestant family. Uh, a couple of our other sisters were, were um, married to ministers. Um, so this is a family that takes religion seriously. So the fact that she did have extramarital sex, and we don't really know how that happened. It could have been an informal betrothal, or it could have been a kind of enforced situation, or maybe a rape. We don't really know. We don't know how the extramarital sex, We don't know the, the exact context. But she did it, and this would have been very problematic for her family, this noble family of the Thomasets. Um Their honor was in part dependent on the sexual morality of the women of the family. It wasn't the only component in the family's honor, but it was a component. Uh, And it's clear that the family did know uh, that she had done this, that she, you know, because she became pregnant. It's clear they knew she was pregnant, even though she doesn't, she tries to hide that from the judges in Geneva. Um, And and she was a problem. So Jeanne-Catherine was a problem a problem for her family, and then ultimately a problem for the judges of Geneva um, what she was accused of a crime. Yeah. And actually, uh, uh, like before we go any further, because I'm starting to get very excited, but let's just like step back for a second and and let's tell our listeners what happened. <laughs> right? So uh, you stumble upon this case that begins on uh, apparently May 6th, 1686, right? So that it, or at least that's not where it begins, but that's like... The event. That's the the event. That's the event. Yeah. So what happens on May uh, 1686 is that um, Jeanne-Catherine, who had a child, an illegitimate daughter two years previously, and had uh, left her daughter in the hands of a wet nurse uh, about 11 kilometers outside of Geneva. So her daughter's living in this village outside of Geneva. She's living in Geneva. And she sometimes goes to visit her daughter. Three or four times she goes to visit her daughter, probably mostly to pay the wet nurse, but maybe also to see if the care was adequate. And it does seem that she was invested in, uh, in, in her daughter's care to some extent. Um, so on that day, May 6, 1686, she uh, walks from Geneva with her cousin, Daniel. Um, they walked the 11 kilometers, which was a considerable distance. If you think about how she was dressed uh, as a respectable noblewoman. Uh, you know, peasant women were more accustomed to that kind of distance of walking, but uh, it's clear from the records that that was a a bit of a trial for her. Um, it was a big deal for her to walk 11 kilometers, and yet they wanted to walk because they were doing it on the down low. You know, they didn't want to draw attention by hiring a carriage or, uh, you know, uh, which she certainly would have been able to do financially with her cousin there with her. Uh, but they were trying to just be a little discreet, so they did walk. Uh, and they arrived and they found um, uh, her daughter, Jeanne, who seemed to be doing well, uh, And but she was under the care of the mother, mother-in-law mother of the wet nurse. And soon after their visit, soon after they arrived, within an hour or so, um, little Jeanne, who was two years old, uh, started to vomit uh, very poor Vigorously seems like the wrong word. <laughs> uh, but, uh, violently. Uh, and so did the five-year-old son of the wet nurse. So we have two children vomiting violently. All of a sudden, they seem to be fine. Now they're not fine. Uh, and Jean, catherine the mother, and the cousin Daniel d- do stick around and do try and take care of the children for about an hour or two. It's unclear. Different testimonies at different time periods. They stuck around for a bit but then daniel said i have to leave uh and uh, jeanne catherine kind of needed to go with them because uh, a noble one walking alone was really anomalous she really did need a companion to be respectable so um, partially under pressure from her cousin daniel jeanne catherine leaves the children when they appear to be sleeping they walk back to geneva they have lunch they have a salad who would have thought people in the 17th century had a salad but anyway, they went they bought a salad they had lunch and then uh, the cousin Daniel leaves town and he returns to Switzerland, which is really just a few kilometers away. At this point, Geneva is an independent republic, not part of Switzerland the way it is today, right? So Geneva is a little little republic on the, the outskirts of Switzerland. So he leaves Geneva. He goes home. And jean catherine goes on with her day, thinking that, well, thinking we don't know what which she was thinking, right? But uh, later that afternoon, so jean catherines in Geneva. The cousins left town. In the village, the two children die. They die very suddenly. They die in great pain. And they have black tongues. Something looks very wrong. And so the father of the little boy, the peasant father of the little boy, who died, five-year-old, calls an apothecary. uh, So kind of a medical professional and um, someone who knew uh, drugs very well to uh, try and minister to the children. And um, the apothecary suggests that they've been poisoned because he looks at their black tongues. He looks at the rapidity from which they went from basically good health to death, a matter of hours. Uh, he looks at the similarity of their symptoms and and says something's wrong. And so the father of the little boy marches to Geneva, accuses Jeanne-Catherine of deliberately poisoning both the children and brings her to the authorities. And then we have this case. Huge case. Um so obviously testimony, loads of testimony from everyone, right? This Jean Catherine, the, the the peasant men you don't hear from very often. Um what else have we got in this case? Well the one of the main um witnesses for the Prosecution is the mother-in-law of the wet nurse who was present in the house when Jeanne Catherine and, and her cousin Daniel arrived at the house, and so she was questioned over and over again about did Jeanne Catherine give the children any wine, any candy, and in fact, you know, anything to eat, and you know, any kind of um, a substance that would transmit poison. And it is, and, and it was clear, and Jeanne Catherine also admitted that she gave both uh, her daughter Jeanne and the uh, five-year-old boy candy. But she said everybody had some of the candy. She brought a bag of candy to offer to the household. And the mother-in-law had some. And the mother had some. And the mother's brother had some. And they had, you know, she, Jean-Catherine had it. Daniel had it. So so there couldn't have been anything wrong with the candy. So that was that Jean-Catherine's story. The mother-in-law's story was that um, that when the mother-in-law briefly left the kitchen that Jean-Catherine had, given the children poison in wine. So that we see from the very beginning, very conflicting narratives. Jeanne-Catherine always defended her innocence uh, in the courtroom and and all the interrogations with and without torture. She defended her innocence. She said she would never do such a horrible thing. Uh, She insisted that candies were fine. She insisted that she'd never asked for wine and that she never drank any wine. And um, the mother-in-law, Louise Duclay had a very different story to tell. So there were women, and then there were obviously the wet nurse uh, and other women who had supported um, Jeanne-Catherine in her confinement. So when she'd given birth two years earlier, there had been a midwife and she'd stayed with another woman. But all of those women, we hear their voices. Um, we also uh, hear voices the voices of the men in the community who kind of vouch for the women as being respectable women. But they don't have a lot to add because most of them weren't actually in the house when all of this drama unfolded. Um, we also hear from two, um, two physicians, two medical doctors, and two surgeons who go and are sent out by the court to examine the corpses. Um, they do a very detailed autopsy, and that autopsy is part of the record. So we really get to see how what 17th century science was like. So that's a, another sort of angle on the trial is that we get to see how medical evidence was used in the courtroom in the 17th century, which we sometimes have access to, but this is a particularly rich vein uh, of the trial. Um, The physicians actually take um, a substance from the corpse of the little boy and they conduct medical experiments on, chemical experiments on this substance. They they claim to have found a granular substance in the stomach of the boy, which they claimed ultimately to be pure arsenic. And, you know, according to our medical knowledge that would not have been the way things worked. Uh, But they were very rigorous in the way that they tried to do a controlled study, and they mixed the substance in the boy's stomach with various different chemicals and observed the different reactions, and they submitted that report to the court as well. Um, And then we start seeing letters also in the court record. Uh, So, Jean-Catherine, from a noble family, it was very, very unusual for a noble woman to be charged with any crime. Noble women tended not to be uh, brought before the courts very often, which isn't to say they never committed crimes, but they tended not to be where the focus of the court sort of, uh, yeah, they were not the focus of the court. So, and specifically when we think about this as an infanticide trial, so an illegitimate mother having a child outside of wedlock and then the child dying in some kind of circumstance that doesn't seem totally natural, most women who are accused of infanticide were a much lower social scale. So Jean-Catherine's really unusual. So for a noble woman to be accused of a crime like this was highly unusual. Uh, And so her family um, started to rally and try and pressure the judges of Geneva to release her uh, and let her return to Switzerland. So Jean-Catherine was living in Geneva, but she was actually uh, from Switzerland, uh, so there was some question of whether the judges really had the jurisdiction and the authority to to conduct the trial. So that's another really, really interesting element of the case is these letters between uh, the family, Jean Catherine's family, when they were of a slightly higher status than the judges of Geneva. So people playing with social status. So nobles trying to influence the judicial process, just like we see elite people trying to influence the judicial process today. Um, Trying to use their money, trying to use their influence uh, to try and affect the way the child is going to come out. So there are several letters there. Uh, and then there are letters even from uh, military and government officials in Switzerland putting pressure as well on uh, the judges to release her. So it's, it's uh, and there, there are also letters between, there's a letter uh, from Jean Catherine's brother, and Jean Catherine writes, um, one personal letter that was we, we, we added to the trial transcript as well. Um, so a really diverse sources. And then, of course, the interrogations. So the interrogations are uh, usually the heart of any criminal trial. And in early modern Europe, because um, of the legal system that they were using, they, um, they wrote them down. So, you know, we have lots of police interrogations today that, you know, whenever someone's accused of a crime, people start asking questions. But these things, now today they're recorded, but but for many, many places, many times, uh, that kind of, uh, that early investigation, interrogations of the criminal, we don't really have a lot of records of that. But because of the particular uh, legal system that was in place in early modern Europe, which is derived from Roman law, which was very heavy on documentation, you've got to document everything, all of the interrogations, as far as we know, that China was subjected to were all transcribed. So we have interrogation after interrogation uh, in which she's able to give her version of the story. And um, the judges and the prosecuting officials are able to try and undermine her story and really try and figure out what happened. So lots and lots of diverse and interesting documentation, I would have to say, I think. <laughs> okay. oh, so um, absolutely. And just just if we just look at the interrogations, we see uh, competing narratives, right? Where the same story, the same exact situation is described in different ways. Absolutely. Yeah. So everybody's trying to make themselves look good. <laughs> and they're always making a case about whether she's innocent or whether she's guilty. So everybody has an agenda. They're not just, I'm not saying that they were lying. They, this may have been the reality that they experienced. But but they're they're shaping their narrative to direct it towards the purpose of either exonerating her or condemning her yeah i mean which is which is one of the dangers of these sources now there's no no perfect sources and criminal trials are are fantastic but this is one of the things when you read you have to be careful about you need to know that everyone is telling their best possible version exactly exactly and i think that's um something that i try and really highlight in the introduction that um that You're going to get different versions, and then you have to really sort out for yourself as a historian in practice, because as reading these documents, you become a historian. And this is the kind of work that historians constantly have to do. What do I believe? Where is the most persuasive case? Is there a middle way between all of these different stories that may have been the most likely uh, sequence of events or motivations for what happened? Uh, And so as a reader, you are constantly confronting these very different versions of a very narrow set of events, which I sort of described to you. So not a lot of things happen, but wow, people had very different versions of what happened in that very narrow frame. Uh, So yeah, you're confronted with that. And so every time you read a document, you read one document, you think, oh, okay, I think I understand what happened. And then the next one is quite a different perspective. And so you're constantly sort of sifting and sorting um, what you think happened. Um, Yeah. And then add in time distance different viewpoints preconceptions it can get pretty messy um it also tells us a lot of stuff just kind of on the side right so you know as you mentioned you're learning about early modern science because you've got these doctors telling you about science absolutely yeah i did actually have the opportunity to speak to students at reed college a couple of years ago and they were doing a seminar on early modern science and I was brought in and they read part of the trial. Uh, they read about the experiments and they could see how these provincial doctors in Geneva, which at the time was like, you know, it was a, a town we would consider it a town. It was technically a city, but, you know, 15,000 people, uh, not exactly at the heart of things. You know, we're not talking at somebody in London or Paris where, uh, where we're seeing uh, academic societies being formed uh, under the encouragement of the French and English kings to investigate things. So these are men on the margins, really, but clearly very much aware of what all the scientific developments of the 17th century, and very much invested in showing that they have that knowledge and that they are serious scientific practitioners. So it was really a joy to speak with those students because they had a bit of knowledge of what early modern science looked like, and they could totally fit these reports into that broader context, yeah. So that's another side of the trial, absolutely. Yeah, and I'm reading a kind of again against the grain there to see what you what what they're what they're telling you by not saying things as well. Exactly, exactly what they're not including. Absolutely. Um, yeah, the benefits of, of criminal cases and some of the issues with them. Um, I love as well. Um, just. This case in particular, it's just this one little, you know, this one afternoon and everyone's got opinions. Um, And but uh, another thing that I think is probably striking for our audience is that what you would call that it's it's neat. It's organized. There's something like due process and like witnesses are subjected to kind of checks of their where how they stand or what their opinions are. Mm hmm. Yeah, I think it's really easy for people to assume that in the pre-modern period, uh, that justice looked really different from the way it does today. Now there are clearly differences, right? Torture is not legal in any, you know, in Europe or North America today. Although police interrogations can be, police are allowed, in uh, many places are allowed to lie, for example, to. Um, to uh, defendants. And so, you know, the line between psychological torture and physical torture maybe is more messy than we tend to think. But still, clear differences between the way that criminal justice was practiced back then and now. But there are a lot of similarities. I mean, we came out of that tradition. Uh, So uh, as I mentioned, early modern justice was based on Roman law, so classical Roman law, and uh, But it was adopted in, in the medieval and early modern period, and it was very systematic. Absolutely, they were trying to uh, definitively prove a crime, and that meant that it wasn't enough for someone to just say, yeah, I did it. The person had to say, yeah, I did it, and it had to, their confession had to be consistent with all of the other evidence that had already been gathered in the trial. So before a defendant was interrogated, the investigators went out, they... Gathered witness testimony, they gathered uh, physical evidence, they got reports from doctors if that was relevant, and then they went to the defendant and asked them, you know, what did you actually do? And so, um, you know, that the defendant uh, might say I'm innocent, as Jeanne Catherine insists that she's innocent, or they might just say they, they might get very discouraged from the torture. So um, in Geneva, a, a defendant could be tortured more than once, many times. Many times, meaning five or six times at, at a maximum, not, not Abu Ghraib or Guantanamo Bay, uh, waterboarding dozens of times. So it, you know, um, but they could be tortured more than once, and and it's pretty clear from the records that um, people understood that if you were tortured and you confessed to that crime, if you're being tortured, it had to be a pretty serious crime. You weren't going to be tortured for stealing bread in the market. So if you confessed under torture, you would likely be executed. So people had a pretty strong motivation to deny uh, that they had done something wrong and to claim innocence. Uh, and and we see most people doing that with their first session of torture. But if the prosecutors are de- determined enough to get them to confess and they're tortured several times, uh, many defendants uh, end up confessing. And, and, and we don't know whether they did it. We just know. That that they were so discouraged by being in prison. Prison, of course, was very brutal in this period, um, just not heated. There was no no ventilation. Um, They were living on bread and water. Um, So you could see that if you're in prison for several weeks, you just psychologically, physically, you're just deteriorating. And it might seem the easiest thing to confess. So um, so it was a very it was very systematic. But they also, part of the things that was systematic was their use of torture. So it wasn't uncontrolled, the use of torture. I would say the most that someone was tortured was five or six times. In other parts of early modern Europe, you could only be tortured once. Um, So it's not what we might think of as sort of unbridled violence and abuse. Um, It was reined in. They were trying to keep it rational. Um, the judges were aware that people could lie under torture and they were trying to mitigate that by not torturing them too many times by only using as much pain as they thought they needed to to get what they needed was a confession um so it was yeah it was much more systematic than people tend to assume when they think of like classic medieval violence and oh jousting and uh random torture uh, in the early modern period, but also in the late medieval period. This is a very systemized form of justice. There are appeals processes in many places, uh, There their different levels of courts. It's quite institutionally complex. Uh, and this always surprises students when I'm teaching about criminal justice in early modern Europe, just how sophisticated the legal system is, uh, how much law has been codified and is written down, and the legal limits on what judges and, um, and public investigators could do to a defendant to try and get them to confess. Yeah, I'm always surprised by how much, how well the people who are involved in the cases seem to understand the law around them. Absolutely. This, these were highly litigious societies in which people were going to the courts regularly. That, so there was criminal justice, there were civil There were civil, um, courts as well. So people were often taking each other to court um, to get compensation. So a, kind of si- a civil pr- procedure where it would result in some kind of payment rather than a criminal procedure, which would result if the person is found guilty, some kind of a punishment. Um, and people knew the law. They knew the law pretty well. They did all the ins and outs, but they knew that they, if they were accused of a capital crime like poisoning uh, or infanticide, that they risked being tortured. Um, And they also knew that they probably wouldn't be tortured 20 times. You know, they they knew that there were limits to how much torture they'd be subjected to. And it's not so clear in John Catherine's case, although at times she does indicate that she thought she'd be let off more easily because she must have known that her family was writing these letters to the judge. So she knew her family was putting pressure on the judges. So and that comes out in a couple of moments in the trial where it's clear that she's like, oh, I thought my family had written the letter. You know, and I thought that that wasn't going to happen. Uh, uh, but but not just noble people, other commoners who are brought in and um, and are invest- investigated, interrogated and tortured. Um, I, I, other uh, defendants say things like that. I thought you're only going to torture me once um, because uh, actually in this time at which Anne-Catherine was brought to trial, uh, torture was declining as a as a practice. And increasingly, um, they were using tor- no, increasingly they were using torture less. That's not a great sentence. Oh, yeah. Torture was being used less and less, even though it was still legal. But because judges knew that people often lied uh, under torture, and because they weren't always determined to execute people, um, you could pretty easily uh, convict someone of a lesser sentence, so not execution, but something less like banishment, without a full confession. And increasingly, judges were going in that direction. So sometimes we see defendants saying. I thought you were just going to banish me and not bother to torture me. And they'll say that to the judges. So it's clear that common knowledge of the law was very widely available. It wasn't just through written text. It was an oral knowledge of how the law functioned. So this is, a, which, you know, again, sort of the sophistication of your average city resident who might not be literate, but would understand the basics of how law functioned because people would, you know, that information would be shared orally. And who also these people would probably have been fluent in several dialects. Um, So we tend to assume that people in the earlier periods were more stupid than us, basically, uh, because they weren't literate and they didn't have our technology. Um, So we assume that they were less, less critical thinkers than we are today. Um, But actually, especially linguistically, literacy is often limits the number of languages. I mean, we focus so much energy on literacy um, that we, don't focus on our oral capacities to um, function in several different languages, um, and we have lots of evidence that people in the early modern period, especially if they were related dialects, were quite comfortable in and several. So, so what people knew, even though they weren't literate in the early modern period, is is really uh, quite vast, especially with regards to how the justice system worked. Yeah, and what 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 is going to work in their favor? What they can say to make the court like look most happily upon them, right? Or most yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. The other thing, um, is just that Jean catherine had an illegitimate child, that she is a noble woman, a petty nobility though it may be, that she's a noble woman with an illegitimate child who's taking it out taking her daughter out to the countryside is interesting yeah yeah d- definitely. so um that that she, and that there was a whole network of women who were willing to support her and be hired by her, basically she had to pay them she but they weren't doing the goodness of their art or anything they were doing it because she was paying them so this idea of there being a kind of informal network of women who were supporting people uh, who had difficult births, meaning illegal births, meaning outside of marriage uh is really something that's been highlighted more recently in um in gender and childbirth history, history of the family, i uh, will just mentioned Julie Hardwick's amazing book, Sex and Obergine City, where she talks a lot about this informal economy of, of widows who are willing to house these women, and um, so. And sometimes it happened within the city walls, but not in Geneva. Geneva, you really had to leave. Um, yeah, so it, it, um, uh, lots of sort of those informal relationships were really exposed. Um, through this trial. yeah, And and surprising as well. And just reminding us, you know, uh, another thing I think that we kind of lose track of is the idea that um, everyone knows how to skirt the law, that even in very religious societies, like there's an idea of what might be ideal, but then there's the reality that's messy that you have to live with. Absolutely. And you can see that so much in the early modern period because we do have these really great um, trial records. So we can see so often when so technically we're supposed to have abortions and yet we know that women were able to, using herbs, using, you know, using chemical substances, they were sometimes able to successfully abort children uh, early on in a pregnancy. And this was le- illegal, but yet actually neighbors might know because people are living cheap by jowl in these cities, really small uh, living situations. They would probably see the blood or hear the cries of pain when the woman miscarried, but they weren't going to say anything to the authorities. And, of course, the authorities, it was illegal and the church frowned on it, but people had to live their lives, right? And uh, there was this sort of practical, as long as you don't upset the system too much, uh, a, a practical kind of toleration for all kinds of illicit sexual behaviors and the, the childbirth behaviors that go along with it. So I think, you know, technically, Jeanne Catherine, she was living in Geneva, she was living alone, uh, sometimes with her brother, but but, but by May of 1686 by herself, that itself was really unusual. You don't see noble women living by themselves. She was living uh, in a nice part of Geneva, and she was renting a room from uh, a woman who was uh, a widow, but well-connected. Uh, her family was well-connected with the elite family. So a relatively prosperous widow, I would say. And te- she claimed that she never told her landlady why she was living in Geneva. This was never a subject that came up. And yet it's also clear that the landlady knew exactly why she was living in Geneva. <laughs> she knew that jeanne Catherine had had an illegitimate child. She knew that jeanne Catherine had sent this child off uh, to the countryside to be a wet nurse. Uh, and she knew she was essentially protecting Jeanne-Katrine from the law. That is to say the law in Switzerland. So if, If Jeanne-Catherine had not left Switzerland and come to Geneva, she might well have been brought before the criminal courts in in Bern, which is the biggest city, Bern, biggest city um, near where she was living. And uh, she was living in an area that was under the control of Bern. She might have been brought before Bern and she could have been shamed publicly. She could maybe have been been imprisoned. She could have been fined just for having the illegitimate child, quite apart from what happened later. So uh, we don't know for sure, but it seems that she was a fugitive already by living in Geneva. And it's also clear from the way the trial unfolds that her landlady was fully aware of what the situation was. And probably all of the neighbors were fully aware of what the situation was, but they didn't really mind. Okay, so she made a mistake. She had a baby out of wedlock, not a big problem, well within the sort of tolerated illegalities of that society. But when rumors started to circulate that she had poisoned her daughter, and possibly poisoned a five-year-old son of the wet nurse, that crossed the line for people. That's where she had transgressed people's sense of what's acceptable. That was shocking. And, um, and it, I get the sense that the people of Geneva were, were putting some pressure on the judges to convict her um, because it was a behavior, if she had done it, Right? So that's always the open question. What actually happened? Were the children poisoned? Was it Jeanne-Catherine who had poisoned them? Was it the candy? We, we never know. Uh, but they thought they believed the, the uh, testimony of the village women. That's to say the people of Geneva seemed to believe it. And, uh, and popular opinion was definitely against her. So there was a lot of pressure on the judges of Geneva. On the one hand, for the people of Geneva, who wanted to see a conviction, is she crossed a line killing your kid killing your 2-year-old kid not okay and on the other hand from her family who was saying let her go let her go we're going to put increasing pressure on you politically so they were kind of between a rock and a hard place not as bad a hard place as she was in uh, but uh, but they were they it was a complex situation for sure and that's i mean i think that maybe is kind of our takeaway with this case, with all the work we do as historians, I think it's a thing that would be really interesting for our listeners who should become readers. Um, about reading this trial is uh, it's such. There's, this is such an aberrant moment, but you can see so much about normalcy and how how the world worked. Exactly, exactly. So uh, she. That's right. She. So what's not. Um, unusual is having the illegitimate child. Lots of women were having them, That you know, those, uh, those chemical abortions, no, always work. Uh, and that was pretty normative. And so people had some toleration for that. But um, yeah, her, her other behavior sort of crosses the line. But the fact that you see where the line is being crossed so precisely gives you a really rich sense of what was acceptable in that yeah. society. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's definitely not clearly what is written down in law, custom and religious practice. Absolutely not. Yeah, people are people, communities have their own sense of, of morality and their own sense of honor and their own sense of the complexities of life that there are you know families that not Jean-Catherine so much, but families that really couldn't afford to have all the children that were born to them. And so children were sent to orphanages when they actually had their children, but the parents were still alive because they couldn't manage. There was sort of a sense of practical, life is tough, and sometimes we have to make tough decisions, but possibly poisoning your two-year-old daughter was beyond the pale. No, if she had just gone to the wet nurse and not come back, all so well within normal practice. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Or if, I think this is really crucial, if only the two-year-old John had died and not a little boy, so if you know kids are sent off to wet nurses, child mortality is very very high in this period, and that's true for poor people, and it's true for wealthier people. Everybody was susceptible to the measles, and it was a deadly disease. There were, the plague was returning regularly. Um, these these diseases took took enormous toll, especially on the very young, and so. A great demographic historian of Geneva estimated that 50% of children in Geneva in the 17th century were going to die between a birth and the age of 10. And um, so it's a very, very hard, high death rate. So the idea that little Jeanne died while being cared for by a wet nurse, nobody would have even blinked an eye. And, oh, yeah, she died kind of suddenly and her tongue was black. A little suspicious but uh, you know lots of children die when they've been farmed out to um, to wet nurses and that doesn't mean the wet nurses aren't taking care of them right i mean there are instances of that too but assuming just the level of care the level of hygiene everything a lot of them are going to die but it was the fact that the little boy died too and that they died in the same way and the little boy had a male advocate his father so um the father uh, the, the, as far as we can tell he was their only child so he just lost his only child his only son and he wanted revenge right so if it had just been little jean we probably wouldn't know anything about this story and then that would just be one more lost person one for per- one more person lost to history um yeah and, and then we have this hey so what's next do you back on the torture? Uh, at the moment, I'm back on torture, but I am planning to, um, my next project is going to be about women and their troubles with marriage and childbirth in 17th century Geneva, because in do- doing the work on this trial, I've uncovered just amazing sources, uh, not just criminal records, but, um, records of the local orphanage and, uh, the, um, uh, house of correction where some of these women were sent, um, there, there's a consistory, which is a, a church court, which is uh, bringing attention to all of the illegitimate pregnancies that are happening in Geneva. Um, so, yeah, that's, I guess, what I'm really excited to dive into next is to try and really do uh, an in-depth study of, of this, the challenges that were faced by women in this period and um, delve into sort of their emotional states. Like, what did it feel like to be an illegit- have an illegitimate child and um, and your options are really sort of leaving the child in the orphanage? Uh, or, you know, you have several options. You could abandon the child. You know, what are your options? Can you get the guy who got you pregnant to marry you? Maybe if you could put the right pressure on him, do you really want to marry the guy who doesn't want to marry you? Like lots of really complicated questions. So that's what I'm really excited to get started on. Um, So I I, I guess basically a broader study um, that comes out of the really interesting questions that this trial has posed for me. That's cool. I can't wait to read it. All right, listeners, this has been um, my talk with uh, Sarah Beam of the Professor of History at the University of Victoria about the trial of Jean-Catherine Infanticide in Early Pond in Geneva. Um, Would you follow the, come to our website and follow the link to get a hold of. Uh, Sarah, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much. This has been hugely fun and really, really interesting.